they will lie, humiliate you, make it so that you can't work. Everyone in your neighborhood knows they will completely invade your life. I know because I watched them do it to John and I participated. You have to go toe-to-toe with them. And it's not like you're going toe-to-toe with the other parent. You're going toe-to-toe with everyone. Hi, I'm Beth McNamara, your host, and in this episode, I dive into the very public and contentious child custody case between John Gilbride and Alberta Wicker Gilbride, aka Alberta Africa, leader of MOVE. This episode is going to pick back up in the timeline when John leaves MOVE and Alberta. It is August 1998. John tells his family he's leaving MOVE, and he can't tell him where he's going, and only gives him a phone number. John resurfaces after six weeks and through a lawyer notifies Alberta he's seeking divorce and he's asserting his parental rights with regard to Zach. Alberta gets a lawyer, files a petition for sole custody of Zach, and then John has his lawyer file their own motion. But to them, that was probably the ultimate betrayal. This is former MOVE follower Lori Allen. If you pull MOVE into court, it's going to be ugly. The five-page custody case court docket shows just how ugly it was getting. Between both lawyers, there were 32 filings with family court between November 1998 and February 2000. In March 2000, when Zachary was almost four years old, Alberta and John have a custody hearing with witnesses. This is almost two years after John Gilbride leaves MOVE and two years before his murder. The MOVE people would get on the stand and basically it would follow the same form as the MOVE meetings. This is Mario Africa, who you heard from in the previous episode. They would try to explain to a judge that Alberta was the best thing that ever happened to him. He was on his way to being a homosexual. They would make up things about him abusing Zach. John basically being the male equivalent of Mommy Deer. In our research, we find one news article about these family court hearings. It's from the city paper, and it was published the week of March 16th, 2000, titled, No Moving On, A Child Custody Fight Sparks Threats of More Move Mayhem. The article mentions internet postings by Jamal News Service appearing on the free Mumia Abu Jamal website. And the posting basically says that Gilbride is a traitor, he's a weak person, and he's working with the government to destroy Move. The story goes to a link for February 19th of this posting, but after 19 years, it no longer exists. Luckily, the reporter pulled quotes. Everybody knows how move people feel about our babies. For those of you who know that something wrong is getting ready to happen here and you don't want to see another May 13th, 1985, move is appealing to you to jump on this situation before it starts. The reporter gets some quotes from Cheryl Rents, the attorney for John Gilbride, but Angela Martinez, the attorney for Albert, Alberta refers the reporter to MOVE spokesperson Mario Ramirez. We now know that Mario Ramirez was Mario Africa. In March 2000, John and Alberta have been living apart for 18 months, but they both live in New Jersey. The custody case for Zachary is being heard in Philadelphia because Alberta is claiming that she and Zachary also reside at the MOVE headquarters in Philadelphia. We really want to know what was said in that family court. So we start looking for a way to get a copy of the transcripts. And Bob, our team archivist, contacts Philadelphia court records. The good news is I figured out all of the procedures. What we're waiting for now is word back as to whether or not they have that transcript. He just has to look it up. Okay. Bob gets an email reply right away. He wrote back and he said, we need the exact dates. You just said what the beginning was. So I wrote him back. Did he give you any idea of whether he can come to a 
come to an answer of whether they exist or not by what date, like in a week, in a month, in a day? Uh, no. It sounded like he would know pretty quick. Okay. Two weeks later, Bob hears back from City Records. He says they don't exist anymore. No. That's what he said. Okay. We're going to have to see if somebody else has a copy. Bob and I know that transcripts of actual testimony about the custody battle will provide crucial details. So we keep hunting for a copy. And finally, we get lucky. A confidential source provides us with 549 pages of the court transcripts from March 2000. Okay. Folder shared with you. That's it. Open. I'm going to read from the first page. In the Court of Common Pleas, 1st Judicial District of Pennsylvania, Family Court, Domestic Relations Branch, John Gilbride v. Alberta Wicker Gilbride, docket number 9809046, custody, Tuesday, March 7th, 2000, courtroom 5, the Honorable Judge Edward J. Rosenberg, Cheryl Rents, Esquire, attorney for John Gilbride, Angela Martinez, Esquire, attorney for Alberta Wicker Gilbride. But it's pretty tragic from our perspective right now is that we don't have the rest of the transcript for the rest of the days. So we're not hearing John Gilbride's testimony. The Gilbride v. Gilbride custody hearing was five days long. The podcast only has three of the five days. We still hope to obtain the additional two days because that would include John Gilbride's testimony. For these three days in court, Every testifying witness was there on behalf of Alberta. The list includes Michael Davis, a.k.a. Mike Africa Jr., Raymond Stokes, a.k.a. Dish Africa, Sue Lavino, a.k.a. Sue Africa, or Rhea, Ramona Johnson, a.k.a. Ramona Africa, Gary Wonderland, Dr. Suzanne Ross, and of course, Alberta Wicker Gilbride, a.k.a. Alberta Africa. The podcast has reached out to all of the adult witnesses just named and have either gotten no response or declined to comment. But Mike Africa Jr. does consent to an interview with me and spoke about his relationship to John Gilbride and his testimony in the custody case. But then six months later, calls demanding that I not use any of his interviews for this podcast. With regard to witness Raymond Stokes, a.k.a. Dish Africa, both of his MOVE parents were deceased. He was being raised communally by MOVE. And at the time of his testimony, he's only 16, a minor. So we don't reach out to him for comment about this. Bob and myself have read through the 549 pages of testimony multiple times. There is a lot in these pages to discuss. For the sake of time, our team picked out the testimony that really stood out to us. One, confirmation of the meetings held on John that were mentioned by Mario in the last episode. Has meetings whenever someone needs to be further controlled. There would be screaming, there would be threats. So John was at one point subjected to a number of really intense ongoing meetings like this. Alberta felt like he wasn't holding Zach the right way when he was an infant and supporting his head the right way, and so she hit him. And, and then they had a meeting on John saying that he was purposely trying to injure Zach because he was resentful of Zach and because Zach was getting all of Alberta's attention. These are Alberta's own words to her own attorney about John's unsafe baby holding. And I said to him, you can't hold him like that. He's going to snap his neck. You have to hold the back of his head to give him some support. I had to tell him several times, but he wouldn't do it. Martinez, do you know why? Alberta, no, I don't. So I had to call a meeting. Following Alberta's testimony, Sue, who you know is Rhea, 
Ramona, Mike Africa Jr., and 16-year-old Deesh also give under oath testimony that John's allegedly inadequate baby holding was putting Zachary's life in danger and that John doesn't respond well to criticism in the MOVE meeting, which we now know was hours upon hours of berating. This is what 21-year-old Mike Africa Jr. testified to on March 8th, page 64. Bert said something to him about it, but John didn't respond like in a way that a caring person would. He really didn't want to hear it or something like that. It wasn't in a way where he really showed if he cared about somebody. He would listen. It wasn't like that. It was just like kind of a nasty way. He wasn't responding in a way I would respond if I knew my child was in danger because I wasn't holding him right. I would just start holding him right. In the last episode, former MOVE supporters Lori Allen and Kevin Price talked about their activity to harass John's family. So I organized a protest outside of the Gilbrights neighborhood, holding signs with a bunch of different people. And we started by not protesting first, but by leafleting first. Like, if the missive insinuated at things like, you know, child molestation, I think the signs said it overtly. And we stood at the entrance to their neighborhood so that we were legally, you know, or at least in, in the thinking of Rianne Burt, who planned the whole thing, we would be legally within our right if we stayed on the sidewalk and, you know, didn't violate any noise ordinance. Everything they could do to, to poison the well in the neighborhood and put pressure on John's parents to, to pressure him to back down from the custody case. John's lawyer, Cheryl Rents, brings this up in her questioning of Alberta. March 7th. It begins on page 159. It starts with Rents. Were you aware that just a few weeks ago, various members of MOVE were protesting outside the gated community of John's parents? Alberta. I was told that, yes. Were you told about it after it happened? Yes. Did you know about it before it happened? No. Were you also aware that a few weeks prior to that, flyers were passed out to various residents within that gated community? Yes. Were you told about it beforehand? No. Were you told about it afterward? Yes. Who made the decision to do that? Do you know? I don't know. Who told you about it? Supporters. Which supporters? Supporters we had in Virginia called and told us about their plans to pass out flyers. After the day was over, they talked to me about it. And after the day was over, they talked to me about the demonstration. So various supporters called you afterwards? Not various. One. What's the name of that supporter? Well, I don't know if I'm obligated to tell you that. The court. Yes, if you know, you have an answer. Yes. Alberta. Tony. I don't know any other name for him except Tony. Rents. It's a he? Alberta. Yes. Do you have a telephone number for Tony? No, I don't. He's not actually an acquaintance of mine. He's a supporter of MOVE, and I don't know every supporter that MOVE has. In fact, I know very few. Rents. To the best of your knowledge, do you know how Tony got Mr. Gilbride's parents' address? Alberta. No, I don't. Rents. After the first time that Tony called you after the flyers were passed out, did he tell you about other plans he had? Alberta. Let me just put it to you this way. He did not call me personally. He called Move's house and reported what the supporters had done in Virginia. I happened to be there and I heard about it. He didn't talk to me personally. I'm going to do a quick fact check on Alberta's testimony. I did not organize any protests at the Gilbrides and I was definitely not present. This is Tony. Did you call Alberta at Move headquarters or call Move headquarters about this Virginia protest? No, definitely not. How well did you know Alberta in the year 1999? I mean, I knew her fairly well. Uh, you know, we had had many conversations um, at the house at King Sussing. You know, I was very much involved with the organization. So, yeah, I definitely feel like I knew her 
Well enough. Now back to Alberta's testimony. I know very few of MOVE supporters. I've always stayed in the background when it comes to MOVE's activities. I've never been on the front. I've always stayed in the background. I hardly know any of the supporters. While Alberta is saying that she doesn't really know any of the supporters, there are supporters outside of the courthouse. Did you ever have any personal interaction with John Gilbride? No. This is one of those MOVE supporters. His name is Bob Massey, and he got involved with MOVE when he was 19 years old. Can you explain why you would have been at a courthouse when John Gilbride was there? Well, you know, we, we were kind of more or less instructed to do this, you know, essentially sent there to, to be there as, I don't know, a show of force, you know, some kind of maybe intimidation factor so that he felt intimidated. I do remember that everybody was supposed to wear the same uniform for that activity. You were supposed to wear jeans, a white T-shirt. And a jean jacket. Do you remember who else was there with you? Most of the men who were members of MOVE, most all of the supporters would have been there. Some of the women and some of the children. I mean, it was a large group. The way it was presented to me was was like he was uh, a bad person who shouldn't be involved in his son's life. Everything that I knew about him was what I was told by them. Back inside the courtroom, John's attorney is questioning Alberta. This is March 7th, rents. Between the time you met John in 1988 and the time you got married in 1992, were any of the other MOVE members out of jail yet? Alberta, no. So during those four years, it was just basically you and John developing a friendship and a relationship. In the physical sense, I guess you would say that, yes. When did other MOVE members learn of your marriage to John, Alberta? Well, actually, certain members in the organization knew about it long before it happened. But John didn't know that because we didn't tell him everything, which is a MOVE policy because he's not a MOVE member. Under oath in family court and in front of her MOVE followers, Alberta claims that before she marries John, that MOVE members were aware and John wasn't. According to a March 1992 letter I've obtained, Alberta marries John and then notifies imprisoned MOVE members. The letter is from imprisoned MOVE member Delbert Orr, written to imprisoned MOVE member Ramona Johnson. To get around the prison rules that prisoners can't write to each other, Delbert sends the letter to Alberta, who is not in prison. She rewrites it and sends it to Ramona in prison. It starts, quote, One issue is that of marriage. For some time now, some MOVE people have said that only the coordinator can sanction a marriage. And that's true. But I know some of those people were referring to the individual body of the coordinator, not the force of life. If we stayed with that line of reasoning, that would mean no more sanctioned marriages as long as the coordinator wasn't on this activity. I guess by activity, they mean that John Africa's dead and he's not walking around. And that's wrong. What about all the single move people and the move children coming up? Are people saying those upcoming marriages are unsanctioned wrong? I hope not, because what makes any marriage right sanctioned is move law. The guidelines tell us what's a happy, correct, sanctioned marriage. The letter goes on to say, if two people want a sanctioned marriage, all they have to do is refer to the so-called marriage section of the guidelines, and it'll tell them all they need to know about familiarity, trust, honesty, all the things necessary to have a successful, sanctioned marriage. Long live John Africa forever. And the same goes for that attitude some members have about no new movement. And the same goes for that attitude some members have about no new move members ever being accepted into the family. I'm not calling for no decisions from nobody. 
just putting out my thoughts to you and for you to share with my sisters. I feel real good about the way things is going. Like I said, after the initial impact from the quote, mother of all news, heh heh heh, talking about Tony getting married, I've been feeling much better and I'm confident this is going to work out for the best, exclamation mark. It was always said in Move that the late John Africa said that Move women, because they believed in him, Move law, that they could be fertile well into their 70s. Alberta gave birth to Zachary at age 48, but in these court transcripts, Alberta admits to using IVF, in vitro fertilization, in order to conceive Zachary. Mario alleges that the conception of Zachary went one step further than just IVF. In vitro? from John and, and an egg donor who was not a person of color, planted inside of Alberta, and she carried him and delivered by a C-section. Zach is not black at all. Mario is alleging that the egg donor chosen by Alberta and John was Caucasian. In court, John had actually bought some of that out. That, that's how he was conceived. I believe there was even a newspaper story at one point that referenced it. This is a quote from John's attorney. Like Gilbride, the woman who served as the egg donor for the fertilization process was white. And Zach Gilbride, says Rents, looks Irish. He has blonde hair, rosy cheeks. He's adorable. Two former members of MOVE, June and Witt, remember some confusing things from Alberta with regard to Zach when he was very young. He was even dyeing his hair. Remember his hair was bright blonde? Oh, yeah. Because she wanted to say he was mixed. Like, he had this little, like, part in the top of his head, like, Uh in the back that would get tangled. And she said that was the black in him. That was the black coming out of him. This is Mario again. There's a handful of us that know about it. You just don't talk about it. It's just something that's never discussed. Things have come out a few times, but Bert will still deny it. According to Mario, everyone's race and move was also up for discussion from Alberta. And so I'm lighter than her. And so if I was claiming to be black, then that completely screwed up her entire identity. And it made her look ridiculous. Because the thing is, if I'm sitting there like three shades lighter than her claiming to be black, and she's over there three shades darker than me claiming that she's white, she would fight me tooth and nail trying to say that I wasn't black or trying to convince me not to identify as black. This is from March 7th, and it begins on page 138. Alberta has just been testifying to John's lawyer, Cheryl Rents, that the government is always at odds with MOVE because 15 years earlier, the city of Philadelphia dropped a bomb on their headquarters. Rents, isn't it true that as a result of those bombings that they provided a life trust to various MOVE members? Martinez, objection, your honor. I guess I'll ask for an offer of proof at this time. Your honor, one of Mrs. Gilbride's issues was that Mr. Gilbride left her financially stranded. And what I'm offering to prove is that Mrs. Gilbride was far from financially stranded, that she has access to a great deal of funds. And I was going to go through that to prove that Mrs. Gilbride has access to money. She was not stranded, that there was always a roof over Zach's house. Mr. Gilbride knew that Zach would always have food on the table. The court, the objection is denied. Rents. Mrs. Gilbride, isn't it true that the city provided a life trust for various MOVE members? Alberta, they provided nothing for MOVE members. There was a trust that was established as a result of children being killed by the city of Philadelphia, so I don't really interpret it that way. Court, is there a trust that has been established which you could avail yourself to be entitled to some funds? Alberta, only if it's for a beneficiary of the trust, which I am not one. Court, that trust, if any, that has been established, does it in any way benefit you or your child? Is that right? Alberta, no, that's not true. Court, that's what counsel was asking. Martinez, those are two different questions, Your Honor. Alberta, I don't understand what she's saying to me. Is she asking me about Zach? The court, I'm raising the question. Alberta, well, Zach is a beneficiary of the trust. 
He was made a beneficiary after John left. Rents. Who are the trustees of the trust? Alberta. Mary Elaine Robbins and myself. Rents. Mrs. Gilbride. When the decision was made for you to go to France and an apartment was rented over in Paris, who paid that rent? Sue Lavino, Africa. I'm going to pause the transcript for a minute for a clarifying note. In the first six months of 1998, Alberta rents an apartment in a very pricey area of Paris for her and Zach. Is Sue Africa employed? She is one of the parents that the money came into the trust, came to the parents whose children were killed, and she is one of the parents. So she is not a beneficiary of any income money, but of principal money, and she is absolutely within her right to give it to whomever she wants to give it to. Rents. So the origination of that money came from the trust, even though it came through Sue Africa, and Sue Africa to you. Alberta. No, I wouldn't say that, because once money is given to a beneficiary of the trust, it is no longer any responsibility of the trust or the trustee. It is now in the hands of the beneficiary, who may do whatever they want with it. Rents. I guess I'm a little confused. That money that paid for France, was it Sue Africa's children's money as a result of this life trust? Alberta. It was Sue Africa's money as a result of her son being killed by the city of Philadelphia on May 13th, 1985. Once the money is given from the trustee into the hands of a beneficiary, particularly the parents who are the number one beneficiaries of this trust, that money is no longer an issue of the trust, nor it is any issue of the trustee. It is now in the hands of the beneficiary who has absolutely no obligation to explain themselves one way or another how they spend it. That's the way the trust has been set up. The trust being discussed is from a large financial settlement from the city of Philadelphia for the death of the five children inside MOVE headquarters on May 13th, 1985. I'm going to read from a March 13th, 1990 article in the Philadelphia Daily News by reporter Gloria Campisi. This is the third paragraph. Chief Deputy City Solicitor Mary Ellen Krober said the beneficiaries of the estate had not yet been named, but she said the children's estates are overseen by jailed MOVE member Consuela Dotson Africa, mother of the two young victims, and in the case of the three other young children, by MOVE widow Alberta Wicker Africa. Alberta wasn't there on May 13th and did not have any children at the time. The settlement was 500000 per child, totaling $2.5 million. Line 13, page 143. Rents. And the car that you own is paid for... Alberta, I don't own a car. I have a car that is owned by the Life Trust because I was the only trustee at the time that this car was purchased. I am the living, breathing person who had signed the papers, but that's not my car. Rents, it's a move car? Alberta, exactly. And you stated that Mr. Gilbride paid the mortgage. Am I correct? Alberta, yes. There are also real estate taxes on that house. Alberta, yes. Who pays the real estate taxes? Alberta, one of the beneficiaries of the trust pays that so that Zach could have a house. Who paid your living expenses when you were over in France? Sue, through the trust, through her money. Through the trust, through her money. She had access to money, and that's the key to this whole thing. All of this is about money. This is Mario again, and he is alleging that a lot of money from the $2.5 million trust was directly benefiting Alberta. She was literally spending their money. She was living in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, and a huge home. She was traveling to France. She was traveling around the globe, all over Europe, spending tons of money. There were literally furs, not fake furs, but fur furs, extravagant jewelry. It is a fact that all of the parents of the five children for which this settlement 
was meant for, were incarcerated at the time in July 1990 when the money was dispersed. Four of them were part of the Move 9, serving 30 to 100-year sentences for the murder of police officer James Ramp, who was on the scene August 8, 1978, in a confrontation with Move. It has been alleged by many sources that all six of the Move member parents of the five deceased children were still loyal Move members, and therefore the settlement was considered for the entire Move family, and seems like that is why Alberta Wicker Africa as the leader, was chosen to be the primary trustee. She was sitting on top of all this money, and all this money belonged to other people. And it's I remember points where Consuelo was literally living in squat while Bert was living in the lap of luxury. The Consuela that Mario is referencing is Consuela Dotson Africa. Consuela was incarcerated when her two daughters, Katricia and Zanetta, died in the May 13th bombing. And she was not released from prison on charges related to August 8th, 1978, until 1994. Mario, along with many other of our sources, are alleging that Consuela, who had a claim to a million dollars of the two and a half million dollar settlement, was living in poverty from 1994 until her recent death this past June. The podcast is actively investigating these allegations in the overall story of MOVE. The day after John's lawyer is questioning Alberta about the trust, Angela Martinez, Alberta's lawyer, brings it up again, saying there was disjointing information presented to the court about this trust. This is March 8th, page 35. Martinez. First off, when was the trust originally created? Alberta, in 1990. Was Zachary a beneficiary in 1990? He wasn't born yet. When did Zach become a potential beneficiary of the trust? Alberta, either in late 96 or early 97. I'm going to make a note here. Zach was born May 15th, 1996. Back to Alberta's testimony. And at that time, were you still together with your husband? Is that right? Yes. Did Zach receive benefits from the trust while you and John were still living together? Alberta, personal benefits? Martinez, right. Alberta, I don't know because there are two ways. Martinez, Money directly to Zach for himself or anything he needed. Alberta, no. It goes on at the bottom of the page, and Martinez says, Did you personally directly tap into the trust to pay your son's bills? Alberta, no. This is Mario again. She didn't have a job. And then after her and John split, she wasn't getting money from John. But she was spending the trust money even before John left. Yeah, no, definitely. Things that's key to all of this is just money and her greed. This is from page 37 of the transcript, same day. The court, who established this trust that you're talking about? Are there papers establishing it? Alberta, yes. The court, are there copies of any papers? Alberta, I really don't know what you mean, who established it. I don't understand that. The court, by the city, by some person it was created? Alberta, it was created because of the... The court, I don't want to know why it was created. Who created the trust? Alberta, I guess you could say the city of Philadelphia. I don't really know. Martinez interjects. I may clarify it a little bit. The trust was created by the people who received the monies. They are members of the MOVE organization who received money as a result of a lawsuit against the city of Philadelphia, which I was co-counsel. Those people chose to pull those funds and create a single trust. The court. Is this child a beneficiary of that trust? Martinez. He may now be. He was not when it was created. He wasn't born when it was created. The court, when you say may, 
That's uncertain. Martinez, that is correct. The trustee is not mandated to distribute any funds. Alberta's lawyer, Angela Martinez, experienced in family court specifically, just said in court that she was co-counsel for the huge, high-profile civil case that resulted in the $2.5 million settlement. This was late 80s, early 90s, and John Gilbride is deeply involved in what was then a very small move. If it's possible that John knew Angela prior to 2000, then maybe Mario did too. She was one of the people who came around, moved around the same time as Ramona, around the same time as Pam, and around the same time as some of the other supporters in Paladin Village before August 8th. And so, as I understood, she was a college student at the time and moved subsequently, paid for her to go to law school. That was something that John Africa strategized. Mario is alleging that John Africa strategized and paid for Angela Martinez to go to Villanova Law School. I heard that from Alberta and Sue. It seemed like there was a relationship, and, and, and I saw this throughout the custody case, where Angela seemed reluctant on a few occasions, and I remember there being tension between Alberta and Angela, and, and also Sue and Ramona. Behind closed doors, they were talking about she's got another life now, and she doesn't want to put her job and her reputation and you know her money and her house and her marriage and everything on the line, but she is indebted to move. And so it always seemed like that they had information or they had something that they could leverage with her to make her go along with certain things. Would you classify Angela as a supporter? From what I knew of her history, that she was at the very least a supporter. The podcast has found other MOVE legal cases where Angela Martinez was involved, dating back all the way to 1981. So this means she was possibly affiliated with MOVE for more than 30 years at the time of this March 2000 John Gilbride custody case. In groups like MOVE, there is often an in-house lawyer, an accountant type, and sometimes a doctor lending their credibility, skills, and access to the group's cause. Now I'm going to talk about the expert witnesses that were part of this family court hearing. Alberta brought in a child psychologist from New York City, Dr. Suzanne Ross. Dr. Ross is a longtime MOVE and Mumia supporter. We reached out to Dr. Ross, and she was willing to talk to us, but said that she needed to ask MOVE's permission. When she called me back, she said she wouldn't be talking to us. Dr. Suzanne Ross is the last testifying witness for these three days in March 2000. As mentioned earlier, it is reported in the city paper that Judge Rosenberg suspends the rest of the proceedings for two months, citing the need for psychological testing on Zach and for needed time to arrange for other testifying witnesses. These witnesses are incarcerated MOVE members that need to be transported. For John, it is our belief that his expert witness will be Andino Ward. Well, we'd like you as an expert witness regarding the aspect of MOVE and, uh, you know, what they're like and what you went through. Andino Ward was never a MOVE member, but in 1973, when he goes to pick up his infant son, Owewol, from his 20-year-old estranged wife, Rhonda, he's told she's gone and now living with MOVE. Andina goes straight to MOVE headquarters in the Palatine Village neighborhood of West Philadelphia. She doesn't want to see you. And I'm like, I'd like to hear that from her. And I'd also like to see my son. Although you may be the biological father, but you're really not the father. What do you mean? I am his father. I'm the reason he exists, along with his mother. How do, what are you saying to me? 
Move believes this and Move believes that. And just because you're the biological father doesn't make you the father. Move is now basically his father. And Move is now basically his mother's uh, husband. When Andino protests, he's chased away by Move men with hatchets. In the winter of 1980, Andino finally locates his estranged wife. She's in prison, and he goes to see her to find out where their son is. Do you know where O.U. Wolf is? And she just looks at me, basically, with this very cold, very menacing look. If you continue to look for him, they will kill him rather than give him to you. I knew that she was telling me the truth because it's move, and anything is possible with them. And I had heard reports of kids disappearing and not being seen again. And Dino's story of being denied his legal parental rights for his son, Owewo Ford, is why John wanted to use him as a witness in his custody battle with Move over his son, Zachary. But Andino never testifies, and there is speculation that it was a result of Move showing up at the office of John's lawyer, Cheryl Rents. This is what Mario remembers. I remember there being a demonstration where the women, along with the babies and the children, went to her office. And I believe that was in Center City. I did not personally go to that. But there was another time where myself, Alberta, Carlos, and Ramona went to Cheryl Rentz's office out on the main line outside of the city. When we got there, Alberta, she announced herself. She was there to see Cheryl Rentz. And she and Ramona went into the office. Myself and Carlos, we didn't. We remained in the lobby. She, as either intimidation or window dressing, they were very surprised that we were there. I think that Cheryl felt cornered. Did you know that Andino Ward was scheduled to testify? We did know that. With all the years that I spent in MOVE, anytime his name came up, whether it was in the media, around things with Birdie, in the context of the custody case, or any other situation before or after that, it was always met with vitriol and disdain. And he was, he hated MOVE. He was an enemy of move. He abused his son. He was an unfit father. He was abusive to Rhonda that John Africa saved them from him. We don't know what Alberta, Ramona Africa, and Cheryl Rentz spoke about that day. The podcast has called, emailed, stopped by her office, left a message, and called again, and to date have not heard back from Cheryl Rentz. We do know that Andino Ward never testified, and he tells me that if he had, he would have begun his testimony with this. You know, we're looking at a situation with people that should not be allowed to exist in the capacity that they're existing in doing the things that they're doing because of obviously the deprivation that they are placing upon the innocent children and other adults. But I would have also said very clearly that the system, be it uh, the government of Pennsylvania, uh, is also just as guilty because this man sits here as a result of uh, obviously their deficiencies and inefficiencies in dealing correctly with these folks throughout the years that they've existed. So that would have been basically my overall opening statement. And Dino Ward's testimony very likely could have influenced the Philadelphia Family Court judge's decision regarding the custody of Zachary Gilbride and possibly even triggered an investigation into child neglect and abuse in all of MOVE. MOVE always wants to silence critics because it interferes with their victim narrative and therefore their lucrative fundraising. Amongst the late John Gilbride's papers, we found a very interesting photocopy of a 1989 letter that relates back to Andino Ward and his son, Michael, who is known as Birdie Africa, the only child survivor from May 13, 1985. 
The letter is from Ramona Johnson, Africa, the only adult MOVE member to escape the MOVE headquarters on Osage Avenue on May 13, 1985, before it was engulfed in flames. Her return address is Muncie Prison, and the letter is written to Hollywood film director Steven Spielberg. Ramona's letter is MOVE voicing their displeasure about Steven Spielberg's plan to do a movie about Birdie Africa's MOVE story. A person doesn't have to read between the lines of this five-page letter to see that it is intimidation. I have no idea how John Gilbride obtained the Spielberg letter, but I can confirm that Spielberg's company received it, they then faxed it to somebody, and then the movie was never made. I actually have a letter from Spielberg, the, the final letter, which indicates basically, you know, please forgive us for not being able to move forward with this project because we were just not brave enough. I have been talking with people basically from 1973, 74, all the way up to now about this situation. And no one has even ever come close to talking about the things you're talking about. Because see, even before John Gilbright, there was still the aspect of those children. And that's when you cross basically to the other divide and the city and the state did nothing about it. What we do know from the court docket is that for the next two years, Alberta will continue to have primary custody of Zach. And John will keep trying to see his son, with his goal being to get court-ordered unsupervised visits and to get the case moved over to Camden County, New Jersey, where it should have been all along. In August 2002, this is exactly what happens. Judge Rosenberg has retired, and the case is given to Judge New. On August 8, 2002, John is awarded unsupervised visits, and the judge includes that the order will be enforced in New Jersey and all subsequent challenges shall no longer be in Philadelphia. This is former MOVE supporter Tony Allen again, who you heard from earlier. And the court's order that he would get some visitation. This was something that she said would not happen. Something that MOVE said would not happen. She would not allow this child any time with his father outside of her view. For the next six weeks, the number one priority will be to fight John and anyone who dares to go against Alberta and the MOVE organization. That MOVE was trying their hardest to escalate this thing as far as they could. I was told if uh, we don't do our work and MOVE out and stay alert that the cops would come in and kill us and they would take that. I thought I was protecting Zach. I could see her standing there with a gun. That's coming up on Murder at Ryan's Run. The next episode continues on chronologically in John Gilbride's 2002 custody fight with Alberta and her MOVE cult followers. But there are also also two bonus episodes that you can listen to that give voice to two MOVE children born after Andino's son Bertie escapes MOVE and Spielberg's movie is Shelv. Bonus episode number one, Growing Up Female and MOVE, and bonus episode number two, Growing Up Male and MOVE. Both of these bonus episodes are heartbreaking stories of child abuse suffered inside of MOVE, abuse inflicted by MOVE adults onto MOVE children. After escaping MOVE on May 13th, 1985, Quick final note about Birdie Africa. After escaping MOVE on May 13, 1985, and suffering the loss of his MOVE member mother, Rhonda Harris Ward, Birdie becomes Michael Moses Ward, never going back to MOVE. He graduates high school, goes into the military, gets married, and has two children. In 2013, Michael Ward dies in a tragic drowning accident at the age of 41. To this day, MOVE still stakes a claim to Birdie Africa's story and sells t-shirts with his name on the back. I've put the Steven Spielberg letter up on our social media, so definitely check it out for yourself. If you are finding our podcast informational, I would appreciate it if you would rate, review, and share. 
Also, if you would follow us on social media where you will find bonus content as well as investigative and podcast updates. Thanks for listening. The producers wish to stress that all individuals referenced in this podcast series are presumed innocent unless or until they are proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt in a court of law in the United States of America.